Namaskar. Hello and welcome to P Guru's channel. I'm your host, Sri Ayer. Two days ago, I had done a monologue which said something along the lines of Rana, Riot, Rona. And like clockwork, today we are hearing about writing in Dhaka, uh, in uh, Iskon Temple, and then you're also hearing rumblings in Karnataka. Hey, it's a high court judgment. Why do you have a problem with that? I'm also hearing that some government employees in Karnataka who happen to be from a certain religion took leave. I mean, this is irresponsible. You have to live in the same country that you are a citizen of. Anyway, I don't want to go into a rant now. Today, we have two guests, uh, Arti Tiku Singh and Abhijit Ayer Mitra. Arti ji, first I'll start with you. Why is it so hard for some to accept the truth? Well, uh, this is a country, I mean to say India, uh, this is a country where people have been deliberately with a concerted effort from a huge cabal, an excess of media, intellectuals, bureaucracy, politicians, cinema um, and academia who have kept an entire society in dark with their fabricated narrative. They have fabricated so many untruths for the last 32 years that it is suddenly coming as a shock to people because they did not know this. Nobody had told them that this is what happened to Kashmiri Hindus in 1990, that an entire community was subjected to a genocide, ethnic cleansing. And this big truth, the biggest truth since the 1947, since the independence, was hidden from people uh, so brazenly and so blatantly that it is now coming as a shock to many people. But at the same time, I would say that a large chunk of Indians did know that an entire indigenous community of Kashmiri Hindus were targeted and were driven out of Kashmir in 1990. Uh, yet they did not have the platforms. They did not have the, um, uh, you can say, the institutions which could help that uh, truth come to the public knowledge. And that's what happened. You know, I've been working in media for last 20 years or so. But even as I, you know, worked very hard to bring out this truth, it wasn't easy. It was a struggle. My own community leaders, whether it was MK Tain, Kashinath Pandita, Agni Shekhar, Ajay Srangu, uh, Amarnath Vaishnavi, HL Chatta, all these people, they died. You know, many of these people died telling, uh, you know, uh, screaming at the top of their voice that we have been ethnically cleansed. We have been subjected to genocide. Please, somebody listen to us. But there were no platforms whatsoever available to these people or even to me for telling this truth. That is why the shock. It's like, you know, Matrix has suddenly been decoded and people are suddenly realizing, oh my God, this was all fake. So this is 32 years of narrative, which has turned out to be fake uh, about Kashmiri Hindus. That's the, uh, that's the debate. That's the public discourse going on right now here. Thank you very much, Aarti, for the opening remarks. Abhijit, truth. Truth is the truth. It doesn't change. Why is it 
that some communities have a problem with it? Look, it's very simple because these communities we've been told are just like other communities. They are not. Okay, they are an extremely depressed, economically depressed, uh, violent uh, community which riots at the drop of a hat. Why? Because since 1857, their only tool of political negotiation, absent any uh, uh, education, absent any economic clout, has been street violence. All right. And how much proof do you need of this? What do you think direct action day was? This was things, uh, you know, especially when the Muslim League used to keep losing elections. They then used to set off communal violence. What we know is that since 1857, when, you know, a kind of collective punishment was meted out to Sunnis. And mind you, it's very specifically Sunnis. Okay. Was meted out to Sunnis. <coughs> Excuse me. Since then, it has been the only tool of negotiation that the feudal elites of the Sunnis used to gain political concessions for themselves and keep the rest of the community subdued incidentally. So what has happened is when you have an entire system that has developed around this dual phase, one that exploits their street power and second that exploits the fact that they have to be kept depressed in order for that street power to be deployed. You are the, the entire you are threatening not just a narrative, you are threatening a political edifice. You're threatening an edifice of uh, distribution of goods and services to the elite of that community. You're threatening the academics who have uh, ensured that that system stays in place as rent, uh, you know, for this uh, 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 to create this myth somehow. So obviously there is going to be a significant reaction. And what you're seeing today. All right. Why do you think the ISKCON temple in Dhaka got attacked out of the blue? Why? All right. Um, th there have been attempts within India to spark off riots because of this. I think the problem is the gravity and scale of the myth busting have become so severe that there was no direct ability to go in for riots this time. Though it might start off. Remember, a certain so-called fact checker was tweeting, on the one hand, there is a band today. And on the other hand, he was also tweeting clearly stage shot where somebody was waiting to get up and say uh, inflammatory things at, a, uh, at the end of the screening of the movie. Why do you think that was done? It was done very specifically to spark a riot. But I think it is to somewhat to the credit of those people that except for the people uh, uh, that large parts of the community have stayed silent about this. They have not opened their mouth. They have not come out and apologized. That's fine. But they have not opened their mouths. But everybody who has opened their mouths is somebody who exploits that particular socioeconomic nexus that that community is in, which is one of extreme violence and cruelty. All right. And remember, even in Kashmir, everybody wants to tell you this started off only in 1989. No. This started off when Sheikh Abdullah, under the guise of socialism, decided to nationalize everybody's land going full well. It would only affect the pundits. Then they also introduced the Roshni Act later on, which was meant to take away what little property they had left, which they had abandoned. Remember, it was in 1967 that this lady was abducted 
she was forcibly married off to a Muslim. And despite several assurances, including the visit of the Home Minister Baibi Chavan to Kashmir Valley, she was never produced in court. That is the impunity that they used to get because of their voting power on the ground. And see, this is why it is important that, you know, the BJP keep winning because the, what the BJP's victory shows is that no matter what the mobilization that these people have, there is now a counter Hindu consolidation that is being born precisely because of this kind of highway thuggery, highway rape and highway massacring that the community has resorted to in the name of political expression. Um, thank you, uh, Abhijit. Uh, my first question to uh, both of you, Artiji and uh, Abhijit, is uh, what is preventing the minorities from getting the same kind of amenities as the rest of India? For, as far as uh, you know, education is concerned, basic infrastructure is concerned, everyone has access to this. There is absolutely no discrimination of any sort. If anything, the BJP government has increased the SOPs. So what is it that is preventing from the arm Janata to, to try to uplift themselves? Well, to begin with, you know, uh, there's a long history to how Muslim community in India has always looked at suspicion, looked with uh, suspicion at Western education, at scientific education, because the fundamental premises of the Western education is scientific. And scientific, you know, scientific methodology, scientific approach to understanding life and various phenomena of life are not in synchronization with Islam, are not in synchronization with Quran uh, to begin with, which is their, the holiest book. And that is the last and the final word of Allah. And, it, you know, Quran basically is not in sync with, to begin with, the Darwinian theory. They do not agree that humans, uh, are, humans are an evolutionary form uh, of life. And uh, for them to accept that, I think it's, it has been a challenge for their Malvis and Mullahs. Mind you, I remember, in fact, when the British introduced Western education, in India, Hindus uh, relatively were more open to the idea of uh, Western education compared to Muslims. Muslims resisted the whole idea for a very, very long time. They did not, uh, they did not want to accept the Western education. In fact, Maulana Madhudi, Maulana Madhudi's whole, uh, you know, movement that uh, of Jamaat-e-Islami was also a reaction to the Western system, Western education, Western, uh, you know, uh, progress. And he, they call it, in fact, Jamaat-e-Islami uh, and Diobandi. They all are known as uh, revivalist movements. They are also known as preservation movements of Islam and Islamic society. So that is, that is the phenomena that we have continued to see Wahhabism which is now uh, which is now seen as the most radical form of islam again is basically a resistance and opposition to the scientific way or the scientific education uh, that india has had a huge contribution to begin with as well as the west and in fact it's a shame that even uh, there was a certain period in islamic uh, uh, islamic world when they were 
they were keen to study sciences they were keen to explore argumentation logic reasoning but they have come very far from that and uh, increasingly in the last i would say since world war 2 islam has regressed and islam has moved to a very very fundamentalistic position where they see themselves as the only supreme uh, faith they have as it is you know the way quran has been written it is a very supremacist uh, ideology where everybody else is inferior and does not have the same rights as human beings at the same time they do not even you know um, are compatible with democracy they are not compatible with pluralistic societies they are not compatible with institutions of a democracy especially a liberal pluralistic democracy like india so i think that is the reason that uh, a large chunk of muslims have remained backward they have shown resistance to sending their children for higher education and it keeps this you know repeatedly over the years abhijit your thoughts on why despite getting all the same benefits as everybody else this community doesn't want to avail of them this community is not allowed to avail of that all right remember that because one very clever tool that has been uh, given to muslim politicians in india specifically uh, uh, sunni politicians in india because remember the shias when was the last time you heard about shia riots in this country mm, uh, i don't know at best yeah. at best you would have heard about shia rioting in lucknow against sunnis because the sunnis uh, you know start pelting them with stones when they have to take out their muharram procession it happens in kashmir also but when was the last time you heard about shia riots you don't why because they're financially better off they've generally taken to a path of uh, you know self improvement so why is it that we see this only with the sunnis well it's it's very simple remember these were the ruling classes under the mughal empire they owned these vast tracts of land and it was a heavily feudal system that political system even after dispossession never modernized and it was not allowed to modernize because the leaders of the community wanted that street power as the tool of political negotiation therefore you know what uh, 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 mohammed bin salman has done in saudi arabia or uh, sheikh bin zayed and nahyan have done in dubai and abu dhabi the leadership here is simply not incentivized to modernize that community they are deliberately kept down they will deliberately find the most obscurantist interpretation possible of any given verse of the quran and you will deliberately see to it that it gets more regressive tell me something shri how is it that in saudi arabia of all places the custodian of the two holy mosques says burqa is now uh, optional so ladies are take take they they uh, five years back they wanted the right to drive Mohammed bin Salman has given them everything that they wanted. So now they don't even wear a burqa anymore when coming out in public. If you saw yoga day celebrations, they were coming out in t-shirts with their hair open, t-shirts and shorts, coming out and doing yoga. Ladies in public in Saudi Arabia, but in India, they suddenly now want to wear the burqa. And mind you, this wasn't done 
out of any great uh, 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 piousness or anything. This is not the uh, uh, choice that we're being told about. All right, because remember, students have no choice. When you're a minor, you do not have agency, full stop. You, you only get agency when you're 18 plus. So clearly, this is the parents forcing the kids to do something. And what is happening out here is they are trying to renegotiate a public space that has already been negotiated. Why? Because this is what the community does. When it starts getting ignored, which is what is being happening, because they are no longer able to prove their worth or their value as a vote bank anymore. Then they have to find new avenues of proving their worth as a vote bank. And it isn't working because the more they create issues like the hijab controversy in Karnataka, the more they are seeing to it that Hindu consolidation happens. So there is a very good reason. In effect, the Sunni leadership in this country is behaving like Rahul Gandhi and Priyanka Gandhi are in the Congress. They are losing election after election after election, but they're simply unable to reimagine themselves or reimagine their strategy. They can only go back to what they did before, where everybody else except Rahul Gandhi and Priyanka Gandhi are asked to resign. Uh, that is what you're going to get. Uh, Aarti ji, you want to come in there? Yeah, I want to say one thing. Uh, look, uh, a lot of Muslim youth are now availing education facilities. They are also very career oriented. A lot of them are, you know, in fact, abandoning the approach of their uh, preceding generations. And they are clearly as aspirational as the rest of uh, Indians in their age group. But at the same time, if you really look at their politics, uh, where, in fact, uh, Abhijit is right that when it comes to their politics, they are taking, they're following the politics of the same regressive line as their leaders. And uh, leaders are today, the leaders today are OIC. They speak very fluent English, Rana Ayubs and Arfa Khanums. They are very good at English. They also are very modern. They are also very westernized uh, in many ways. But at the same time, their politics is very regressive. They want to keep their own Muslim community regressive. They want them to remain tied to the Muslim identity rather than the nationalistic identity, which is uh, Indian identity. And their emphasis has been day in, day out that uh, that Muslims are victims. So there, this, there is this perpetual feeding of Muslim victimhood narrative into the mind minds of this younger generation of Muslims who are aspirational, who want to study, who want to make careers, but the, but at the same time, they see themselves first as Muslims, second as Muslim victims, and then third, probably, you know, uh, if, if they really uh, are pushed, they will think about India. But primarily, uh, the focus is on the Muslim victimhood identity. And I think that's where the problem arises in, in uh, India, India's public discourse between Hindus and Muslims. Um, Abhijit, Tablighi Jamaat has been banned in Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, yet India hasn't done a thing about it. What do you think is preventing the Indian government from doing the same thing? Look, you know, for a country that has uh, suffered the most in numerical terms uh, through fundamentalist Islam, 
our actual knowledge of Islamic theology and it's the workings of these subgroups is abysmal. Because, you know, you will still go to academic conferences where they will say, oh, you know, Indian Islam is peaceful because, you know, it was Sufi. Okay. Uh, Tamar Lane was a Sufi. Timur. Uh, and the last time a Sufi co uh, conquered Delhi when uh, Timur did, he killed 100,000 dead. If that is their idea of uh, peaceful Sufi uh, Islam, then you have a serious problem. Another example of Sufism is uh, President Pratibha Patel visited the grave of the Sufi bigot uh, in uh, Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan. What was it, Aarti? What was that name who was responsible for uh, 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 radicalizing uh, most of Kashmir? Shah Hamdan. Shah Hamdani. All right. Yeah. So what happened with Shah Hamdani is that he, he was an absolute bigot who brought about the worst kind of Nazi-style race discrimination laws into Kashmir. And yet you have a president going and uh, garlanding his, uh, putting chadar on his grave and things like that. So, first, we have been fed this nonsense about the peaceful Sufi and Indian Islam being different. Second, we somehow think that because we live in a tactile day-to-day -day existence with Islam, we understand Islam when in fact, like all third world countries, our actual knowledge of those particular strands of Islam is virtually non-existent. So, and, and then there's the third issue, which is that uh, the Tabriki Jamaat, especially its leadership, is seen as some kind of an intelligence asset in this country. Because the, the uh, Tabligi Jamaat, because it is an intra uh, uh, an uh, extra national organization, an international organization, uh, they apparently provide intelligence inputs every now and then. <laughs> now, if, if you think that this is somehow making absolute, uh, uh, what, what I'm saying is absolute nonsense, you're right. But it is based on this nonsense that Indian national policy is made. And um, Abhijit, Tablighi Jamaat has the most number of membership in Bangladesh. Number two is Pakistan. India is not even the top two. And, and, and yet, India hesitates to do anything about it. I'll ask the same question to you also, Artiji. Do you think that this intelligence asset is the main reason why India continues to humor them? After all, during the height of COVID, they did some very bad things. Like like uh, spitting at people when we people we had not fully understood what COVID was capable of doing. See, I don't think it's uh, there. It's just that they provide intelligence. Maybe a handful of uh, Tablighi Jamaat members do offer intelligence, and but then how do you explain the kind of appeasement that we have seen by the Indian state towards Jamaat Islami? towards Diobandi, towards like n number of Muslim, radical Muslim organizations. And how do you explain, uh, for example, Jamaat-e-Islami in Kashmir, which is affiliated to Pakistan's Jamaat-e-Islami and not really Indian Jamaat-e-Islami. How is it that it took India 75 years to ban it? How is it that Jamaat-e-Islami in Kashmir was almost mainstream? Streamed, uh, mainstreamed by politics and by the bureaucracy. Thousands of Jamaat-e-Islami people uh, were allowed to enter, to were in fact recruited 
by various success various governments in jammu and kashmir whether it was farooq abdullah whether it was mufti mohammad said they were recruiting jamaat e islami members in government uh, jobs so how do you really explain that you know uh, that all these organizations which essentially should not have been uh, given the platforms that they got given the importance that they got they shouldn't have but then they they have been given this importance and i think the really the issue has been more than just the intelligence intelligence may be may be right in fact uh, i am sure they do some of the members of uh, these organizations do provide intelligence but at the same time they also have been used as a vote bank uh, mind you you know the congress party's approach to muslim vote bank has been persistently uh, or that of the appeasement in the last 75 years whether it was rajiv gandhi or people who followed him his successors as well it was quite clear that you know uh, criminality within the muslim society was overlooked in fact criminality within the muslim society was incentivized it was given a free hand whether it was you know um, yakub uh, or whether it was uh, um, you know abdul guru whether all all these people who were who should have been criminals in the public eye were not criminals in from the perspective of the congress party and uh, this has been going on and i think this is primarily the reason that congress party today stands decimated and nobody takes congress party seriously because the indian uh public really indian citizens have accepted the constitution much more than they are given credit for we really believe in equality uh, across you know religious denominations we believe in equality uh, irrespective of religion caste creed color gender but the way political parties have functioned in india in the last 75 years Uh, goes to show that you know they their attitude their approach towards muslim vote bank has been very very regressive and they have helped in a way keep muslims regressive for the last seven decades uh let's take a quick look at some of the tweets that are coming out the first one i'm going to ask you abhijit the next one i'll ask you uh arti ji first one omar abdullah tweets many false things have been shown in the kashmir files movie During that time, Farooq Abdullah was not JNK CM, but Governor Rule was there. Blah blah blah, and then he goes on to say it was VP government at the center. And, uh, some somebody is really really not applying his mind here. The guy resigned on the 18th of January, and on 19th was the big wave of uh, you know refugees leaving the uh, Kashmiri pundits leaving Kashmir Valley. But does it mean that in one day everybody decided that they'll drive them out? He was sitting on this for a long time. Abhijit, why is this guy spraying such big, blatant untruth? This person was the chief minister, and he always gets a special reception when he comes to the United States. And you all know what special reception means. Ah, uh, you're muted. You're 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 muted. You're muted. Sorry. Yeah, Obviously, he's going to get a special reception because it's organized for him by the powers that be. But tell me, why do you think he's not going to write that? his entire life story has been absolving himself and his family of blame and pushing it on to other people he never wants to accept blame for anything 
you know, this whole situation, the trigger for it, there were three separate incidents that ultimately combined. The first was the rigging of the 86 elections by Rajiv Gandhi and uh, Farooq Abdullah. The second was uh, 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 the completely staged fake uh, uh, abduction of Rubaiya Saeed uh, uh, by alleged militants and the alleged pain of the father and giving in to those militants by releasing uh, uh, other uh, militants uh, uh, in custody by her father, who was a home minister, Mufti Mohammad Saeed at the time. The third part in all of this is, because by this time, so if, if you look at it, the Rajiv Farooq Accord was the cauldron. Okay, uh, the uh, uh, Mufti Mohammed Saeed, Rubaiya Saeed incident was the lighting the fire under the cauldron. And who put the soup into the cauldron? That was the Afghan jihadis where the Afghan jihad had ended, where they all got transferred lock, stock and barrel to Pakistan's eastern border. Right. And mind you, intelligence was saying throughout that this is going to happen. It's not like there wasn't an intelligence warning, but they never cared. So, of course, they've got a vested interest in not talking about their own role in things. They want to uh, push everything off to somebody else. It's not that their brain isn't working. It's that their brain is working a bit too well. And they have succeeded in making fools of you for the last uh, 32 years. Arthi, you wanted to come in on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Omar Abdullah is, uh, in fact, when he joined politics uh, several years ago, uh, in fact, joined politics, he was anointed as the successor to Farooq Abdullah uh, in the National Conference, uh, National Conference Party. Uh, one of his uh, earliest blogs, he used to write a blog and he wrote a blog saying that Kashmiri Muslims are to be blamed for the ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Pandits and uh, they are to be blamed for driving them out. Today he is saying that as if they had gone for a they went for a picnic and they left everything, they left their homes and they left everything behind, their 10,000 year old heritage, their roots, everything. And they went on a vacation because Governor Jagmohan, uh, you know, was promising them a vacation in Jammu, in the uh, barren refugee camps, you know. Uh, refugee camps were set up, in fact, on barren land. That's why you, if you hear testimonies of Kashmiri Pandits, they, a lot of them actually died of snake bites. That was the kind of condition in which we lived, my own family lived. So uh, it's a shame that Omar is resorting, in, in fact, has stooped so low that he's now saying, what his father and his grandfather, they all have been saying for all these decades, which means to, which, which, which basically goes to show that Omar is not different from the rest or from the rest of his family. Now, coming to the facts, first of all, when um, anybody, anybody who says that the exodus of Kashmiri Pandits happened uh, during VP Singh's time and uh, nothing happened before is lying because the because the precursor to the 1989-90 exodus was 1986 in Anatnag where I come from I uh, and that is South Kashmir Jamaat Islami and Mufti Muhammad Saeed they orchestrated violence massive 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 violence against Kashmiri Hindus 
our temples were desecrated, our uh, uh, properties were burned down, and we were we were targeted. We were beaten up. My mother was beaten up by a police uh, by a policeman in '86, and so uh, for anyone to say that it happened in VP Singh's time clearly does not know uh, the. Uh, I'm sure Omar knows everything, but it doesn't suit his politics because in his politics, Kashmiri Muslims are victims. In his politics, India is the oppressor. In his politics, but he, uh, in fact, his politics is is very much that of his grandfathers and that much, uh, you know, very much that of his fathers because it was Sheikh Abdullah who sowed the seeds of this conflict, this violence and this ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Pandits in 1952. Uh, when after Nehru actually handed over the state of Jammu and Kashmir to him, he took, in fact, he took the princely state of Jammu and Kashmir from Hari Singh and handed it over on a platter to Sheikh Abdullah. That was the arrangement. And Sheikh Abdullah saw himself as an autonomous ruler. He wanted a kingdom of his own, which did not happen because by the time uh, he uh, Nehru had given the state of Jammu and Kashmir to Sheikh Abdullah, he also realized that he had made a major, major blunder. That is why, uh, you know, Sheikh Abdullah and Nehru had their own Delhi Agreement 1952. And uh, over the time, Nehru curtailed the powers of, uh, curtailed and eroded the powers of Article 370 because Nehru did realize that 370 was a disaster. And now, when Sheikh Abdullah started hobnobbing with people, with Americans and with the British, uh, he was looking for he was looking for his own free kingdom, which could have been an ally of the West, uh, because India, uh, mind you, in 1947 was staying uh, distant from the West because there was so much baggage of the colonial history of India and. Nehru himself was more inclined towards Soviet Union. So uh, in the process, Sheikh Abdullah was basically conspiring against India. And that's when he was jailed. And when he was jailed in 1953, after that, from jail, he led a movement called Plebiscite Front Movement, which was essentially that there has to be a plebiscite, there has to be a referendum. And the and it's India which must hold plebiscite because Nehru had apparently promised whatever that promise meant. So this went on and Farooq Abdullah eventually, where after 1971 war between India and Pakistan, Farooq Abdullah was hobnobbing with JKLF, which again is nothing, is not very different from the plebiscite front movement. It is not very different from um, the whole idea of autonomy, which Farooq Abdullah and his entire poetry was propagating in the last three decades. There is very little difference between plebiscite front, JKLF, autonomy of national conference. On the other side of the aisle in Kashmir politics was Jamaat-e-Islami and PDP. So Jamaat-e-Islami is affiliated with Pakistan and PDP was affiliated with Jamaat-e-Islami, Hezbollah Mujahideen is militant wing of Jamaat-e-Islami. So, in a way, between Farooq Abdullah and Mufti Said, they had covered the entire ground of conspiracies 
against India and Hindus, especially Kashmiri Hindus. Uh, one option was the PDP uh, and allies, including Jamaat and Hezbollah, which was completely pro-Pakistan, uh, you know, paradigm. And the other one was autonomy, uh, JKLF, plebiscite, and that was the national conference paradigm. So between the two, they had covered everything and both were inevitably going to drive out Kashmiri Hindus because Kashmiri Hindus resisted this idea that since uh, Jammu and Kashmir was a Muslim majority state and they should have been part of an Islamic Republic, part of a Muslim Ummah, part of, a, uh, of the Muslim world. So Kashmiri Hindus were the only ones who were resisting this idea and they were holding Indian flag and Indian constitution in Kashmir and they had to be had to be eliminated, they had to be driven out because then there was no resistance whatsoever. Abhijit, um, the movie Kashmir Files, it has been viewed in many countries, but it has not yet been released in New Zealand. And there are attempts to try and ban the movie from being shown in the theaters there. Surely the rest of the world has watched this movie. Why should New Zealand act any differently? Or do you think they are going to ban this movie? Look, New Zealand is irrelevant. Who cares about New Zealand? It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's like a... No, 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 no it's, it's not free speech. speech. No, 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 it's not about free speech. Because remember, here we're talking about things called group rights, right? Some group feels offended and New Zealand is particularly woke in this regard. Okay, uh, uh, the, the prime minister goes and wears a, a burqa on her head when the Muslims got slaughtered, but she doesn't do the same when other people get slaughtered. Okay, so it's fine. New Zealand, if you look at, if you even look at the shape of New Zealand, it's a bit like a turd sticking out of a dog, the dog being Australia in this case. So let's not even go there. Why are you so concerned about New Zealand? What is New Zealand in the grand scheme of things? It is irrelevant. Okay, what we need to do is, the impact that has to happen has to happen in India. From this point on, any denial of the genocide is going to be met by extraordinary public hostility. Any defense of that genocide is also going to be met by extraordinary public hostility. I don't think any of these people now will have the guts to ever come out in a public meeting and say what they're saying on Twitter anymore. That is the beginning. Slowly, 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 we then reclaim this. Because what Vigvek Agnihotri has started with this needs to be told about the Marit Chapi massacre. It needs to be told about the Hindu migrations out of Pakistan and Bangladesh. It needs to be told about 1971. It needs to be told about the Mopla massacres. There are, it needs to be told about the Godra train burning also. It needs to be told about the Gujarat riots also. Remember, nobody talks about the 250 Hindus killed. Why doesn't anyone want to talk about the 250 Hindus killed there? Who, what were they killed by? Asteroids falling through outer space. So it, it's fine for people to write Gujarat uh, uh, books without mentioning a single Hindu death in there. But here you have to show in the interest of communal harmony. What does that mean in the interest of communal harmony? It's that if you show us being responsible, we're going to come burn, burn down your uh, uh, schools, rape your women, uh, kill your children, and uh, uh, be exactly the worst stereotype that everybody makes us out to be. This is the beginning. It's going to take time. It's not just going to be New Zealand. There are going to be other, uh, other countries as well that ban it. It's fine. When you ban certain things and it's met with this kind of a response, 
the urge to watch it in secret in private this is why i told vivek agnihotri at the premiere of the delhi premiere of the movie ki bhai you know make all the profit you want on this it is very important this movie makes a profit because other filmmakers should know that there is a market there is a huge resounding market for this because ultimately understand what has happened capitalism has done what governments and uh, the bjp could not for the last 32 years this is a triumph of capitalism but i told him what is going to happen that in spite of that there are going to be once the movie runs are over there are going to be pirated versions circulating let them circulate because it is important it is extremely important that the story gets out so if people want to download it on torrent and watch it do it but then at least contribute something after that if you don't want Thank to you, okay, fine at least watch it at least watch it watch the pirated version and for if you don't want to pay money for it at least make a hellstorm on twitter or facebook or wherever you can uh abhijit i think you've made your point about one takeaway from this talk and that's what i had requested both of you arti ji would you like to chime in first on the new zealand incident and may, maybe more countries might ban it but what you think should be the takeaway abhijit says that make this thing genocide and go after all the people who perpetrated it uh what would be your suggestion so that this never ever happens again well you see uh new zealand banning is uh, is not irrelevant from my perspective because it actually reflects on uh, new zealand and many other countries if they are considering the ban on the movie it reflects a uh, couple of things one they are following the same uh, idiotic regressive politics of muslim vote bank and that is a major failing of democracies and we need to we need to we need to think about it that at what point and how democracies can really maneuver around this uh, you know religious identity politics this muslim vote bank politics second it also goes to show for example you know for decades uh, america did not re- recognize the armenian genocide perpetrated by by turks and for a very long time you know uh, armenians fought for it but eventually you know they have succeeded america has given it recognition um but you know so we will have to also go through that struggle where countries are going to push us are going to resist this whole movement to recognize hindu genocide and hindu genocide is not just limited to kashmiri pandits uh, who were subjected to genocide a systematic genocide for 700 years beginning 14th century it is lot many massacres lot many um lot many episodes of systematic violence against indigenous communities of india for a you know very long time there was no such thing as hindu hinduism as a religion it was just since india is this open liberal pluralistic space and society uh, basically indigenous communities were have been uh, wiped out in india just because they do not one conform to aggressive religions uh, and they do not easily yield to conversion uh, and proselytization of abrahamic faiths 
we have been at the receiving end historically. So we will see resistance from countries like New Zealand and other countries because they fear that someday we might we might raise the issue of how Christian missionary missionaries also led to pro, you know proselytization and have been uh, in many ways trying to disrupt uh, or rupture India's social fabric. So I think uh, we have to be prepared for the larger battle and India has to remain confident and it has to put its foot down. It has to stand up for itself. And I think that is the bigger takeaway from this conversation. Um, thank you very much, Arti. A last question for you, Abhijit, before we uh, call the show a wrap. Uh, oh, I see. The foreign ministers are meeting in Islamabad and these people mischievously extend an invite out to the Hurriya. What are these people? Why, why? What do you think, you know, OIC is thinking? I thought they were, for, for once, they were beginning to act more sane. Why this sudden rush of blood? You're muted. You're muted. Boss, boss, you're muted. Okay, so look, OIC is there to do the BJP's dirty work for them. Okay, uh, remember the more OIC opens his mouth. Not uh, OIC. OIC, Organization of Islamic Countries. Yeah, look, uh, why, why, again, why, why are you so obsessed with the OIC? You know, it's like your obsession with New Zealand. Who is New Zealand? Who is the OIC? You know, OIC, Jamal Abdel Nasser, the president of uh, uh, Egypt, had said the sum total of 50 zeros is zero. It's a mathematical equation. You add 50 zeros, it equals zero. I kid you not. That is exactly what Jamal Abdel Nasser had said. So why are you even concerned? Saudi Arabia and the uh, Emirates openly support India over Kashmir, over everything. But at the OIC, they're happy for whatever resolution because they treat it as a windbag organization. Who takes the OIC? Even the OIC itself doesn't take itself seriously. If you look at the way OIC representatives get treated by the governments of uh, Saudi Arabia or this thing, they're kept waiting in the ha hallways and things like that. Who treats? They're not even treated like ordinary people. Like, you know, the supremacist uh, overtones that uh, Aarti was talking about, they literally, they will treat Indian diplomats, come sir, come sir, have kehwa and things like that. OIC, you wait out there, wait out there and we'll call you when we need to. I think you have to see this dynamic. It's literally treated as the sort of, you know, the what did communists call running lapdog of uh, capitalism? What running what dog of capitalism? The running dog of capitalism or whatever. It's treated as the, the serving maid of Saudi and Amirati interests. You don't need to worry about you. You should only be worried about what Malik kya kehta hai. Jo nokar nokrani kya kehta hai, you should not be worried about. Aarti, you wanted I, to yes. come in? Yeah. You wanted to yeah, come in, Aarti? I agree. You know, OIC, uh, we shouldn't be worried about OIC because uh, they themselves have so much, you know, uh, I don't want to use the crossword. They, so much, they, they have so much mess to deal with themselves that uh, their word really hardly matters. But why I said uh, New Zealand, because New Zealand is a democracy and democratic world has institutions we are you know we are part of democratic world and new zealand is a 
tiny block, uh, tiny component, tiny state uh, of the Western Bloc. So I take that seriously rather than OIC. OIC has a lot of mess. They cannot, uh, you know, to begin with, uh, they can't even debate with us because democracies and dictatorships uh, can't really have um, uh, a serious conversation uh, on, on these issues. So I would say that, yeah, uh, look at the big daddy uh, rather than all these uh, kids uh, Oh, I see. I would say yes. Abhijit is correct that look at uh, the main, main, you know, the big, the big guys rather than the small ones. Thank you very much, Abhijit. Thank you very much, Aarti. And uh, you saw that uh, you know they, there's a deliberate attempt to try and make the movie Kashmir Files uh, being painted as Islamophobia, and actually <laughs> it's a consequence of Hindu phobia, if you will. So this is this is just this is how the ecosystem works. I think ignoring it to a point is okay, but I do think that this needs to be called out because people get whipped up. We people want to get whipped up. That's why we I, are trying to have. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to make one point. This Islamophobia thing. Uh, it is very very strange that for thirty two years. Uh, the entire uh, society, whether it's in India or elsewhere, they they didn't they they haven't been talking about how Islam has been misused, how Islam has been uh, or even used by all these terror organizations, how Wahhabi, Deobandi, uh, Tablighis, all these organizations which have a common manifesto and common overall uh, you know common agenda which is to establish islamic caliphate how uh, this whole mission of islamic caliphate and how all these organizations in and outside india how they have victimized not just hindus but also muslims and uh, instead of dealing with that debate instead of dealing with the kind of with the victimization uh, that Islamic fundamentalism has has uh, perpetrated across the world. They are stuck on Islamophobia. And honestly, I do not even agree with this, this word because it's, it's absurd. Uh, if you really take uh, any of these uh, hadiths and take up even Quran, and if you literally read it and do not go to somebody who can interpret it in a more you know sober way if you just read these texts if, the, if you read this uh, entire all these scriptures it uh, you know uh, i would say that it every human being has both a rational and an irrational reason to fear it because we are talking of we are talking of stoning people we are talking of uh, beheading people, we're talking of uh, lashing people. And this does not, uh, you know, come really, this is not compatible with modern times. It's not compatible, especially with democracies like India. And uh, anybody who reads such texts will rightly be fearful of it. So this absurd word, Islamophobia, and then the kind of terror that they have struck in the last uh, three decades or so, in fact, more uh, in democracies. Why wouldn't I be fearful of 
you know, uh, such texts which motivates people to pick up guns and to kill their own neighbors and to drive them out and to, uh, you know, subject them to a genocide. Why wouldn't I be fearful? So I think this whole nonsensical debate about how Kashmir Files is uh, propagating Islamophobia, it's preposterous because you are basically, you're ba blaming me. I, who uh, has been a victim of Islamic terror, you are asking me to shut my mouth and not uh, point out the truth. You're basically telling me that I am propagating Islamophobia by telling my truth, which is that I am a victim of Islamic terror. Is it, it is just insane. It's absurd and illogical. How can any logical person even say that this is going to generate Islamophobia when essentially the fact is that Islam has been used and misused by terror groups by uh, the proponents or the adherents of Wahhabism, Jamaat, and uh, Dioband and Tablighi. Thank you very much, uh, Aarti. Uh, anything to say in conclusion, Abhijit, and then I can wrap this up. Yeah, just one quick point. Look, all religions have, uh, uh, you know, calls for extreme violence in them. Okay. Why is it that Hinduism... First world Christianity, most of Buddhism seem to have controlled those urges. But Islam for a large part simply has not. At some point, they have to introspect. They are not willing to introspect. And therein lies the problem. Thank you very much. And uh, both of you for taking time from your busy schedules. This was a very quickly put together uh, discussion. And I hope that uh, things continue to improve in Kashmir. I think they are They're much better today than yesterday and, and so on and so forth. And uh, thank you once again, uh, RTG. And thank you very much, Abhijit. And viewers, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe to our channel. And also click on the join button. That is for membership and click on the bell button for notifications. Namaskar.